Now, I also want to ask you to grab your larger catechism. So we're going to look at the larger catechism. We're going to look at the first commandment, and then we're going to look at the third commandment. The text we read today in Proverbs is going to focus on the pursuit of wisdom again, and the value of wisdom. And so the idea of the knowledge of God as the highest good, and the idea of pursuing it with integrity, using the means with integrity, is encouraged by seeing the value of it. So I want us to think about these commandments and then to see how this text is, is drawing out understanding of the first and third commandments. So larger catechism, question 103, says, which is the first commandment? The first commandment is, you shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Question 104, what are the duties required in the first commandment? The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. 105, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism, denying or not having a God, idolatry, and having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God, but not having and avouching him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him, is required in this commandment. Ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of God, bold and curious searchings into his secrets, the things he hasn't revealed. All profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things, and taking them off from him in whole or in part. Vain credulity, so like believing things foolishly. Unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, so not being correctable, and insensibleness under judgments, not taking judgments to be chastisement, not learning from discipline. Hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, or having trust in, in the things of the flesh, the power of man. Tempting of God, using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means. So trusting in lawful means means um, trusting that if you just use the means like using baptism or the Lord's Supper, that it will absolutely mechanistically cause things to happen that are for your good, as opposed to looking to God to bring the blessing. Carnal delights and joys, 
corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal. Lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God. Estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God. Praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures. All compacts and consulting with the devil. And hearkening to his suggestions. Making men the lords of our faith and conscience. Slighting and despising God and his commands. Resisting and grieving of his spirit discontent and impatience at his dispensations, charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us, and ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. The proof texts are about five pages long. 106. What are we especially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? These words before me or before my face in the first commandment teach us that God, who sees all things, takes special notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. That so it may be an argument to dissuade from it and to aggravate it as most impudent provocation, as also to persuade us to do as in his sight whatever we do in his service. Think about that. The idea that Everything we do in his service is in his sight. And there's this temptation. I haven't been an employee for about five months, so I'm still getting used to that. I still feel like sometimes I'm an employee because I'm just used to it my whole life. You know, I've been working for somebody else, right? So you, you, you have this sense as an employee, you want your employer to see the good stuff you do. It's reasonable. The temptation could turn that into eye service, right, where you go, okay, so... I want to make sure it's seen, or, oh, I'm going to look like I'm working harder when the person I work for is around, right? And so the Apostle Paul talks about eye service and not giving eye service. In the worst form, you don't do work when the person's not around, and then when they're around, you look busy, right? That's the, that's the worst form. So, but God is a master who sees everything, and none of us ever leave his employ. But we're not just employees, we're not just servants, we are sons. And in Christ, all of our failings are forgiven. And every good service we give is never forgotten. All of our failings are forgiven. And never good is a good service given forgotten. And so we are encouraged to do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, the third commandment. What is it? One eleven. The third commandment is, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. So what's required here? The third commandment requires that the name of God, His titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, His works, and whatever else there is whereby he makes himself known, he holily, so in a holy way, and reverently, we are to holily and reverently use them. And so those are to be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing. By any holy profession, by a holy profession, 
an answerable conversation. This conversation there is used in a broad way to refer to our behavior. So it's by a holy profession and answerable or responsible way of living to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. So what are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required. And the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning, or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works, like blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating of our oaths and vows if lawful, and fulfilling them if they're unlawful, murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into, and misapplying of God's decrees and providences. That would be like using divination, tarot cards, whatever. Misinterpreting, misapplying, or any way perverting the word or any part of it. To profane jests, curious or unprofitable questioning, vain janglings. Vain janglings, one of the most amusing names for a sin. This idea of just kind of talking in a useless way, just prattling on. Or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, the name of God creatures or anything contained under the name of God, to charms or sinful lusts and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or any wise opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, making profession of religion in hypocrisy or for sinister ends, being ashamed of the profession of religion or being ashamed to your profession of religion by unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and other and offensive walking or backsliding from your profession. It's another good like five and a half pager proof text set. 114, what are the reasons annexed to the third commandment? The reasons annexed to the third commandment in these words, the Lord your God, and for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain, are because he is the Lord and our God. Therefore, his name is not to be profaned or any way abused by us, especially because he will be so far from acquitting and sparing the transgressors of this commandment as that he will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment, albeit many such escape the censures and punishments of men. So, the second, uh, sorry, the first and second, third commandment. Having God as the highest good, the knowledge of Him is what we seek. And having the right use of His revelation, His name, as opposed to the vain use of it. So we come into Proverbs, and we're continuing. We have this in mind. We're going to be engaging with the idea of the value of wisdom, and how we ought to have it as our highest good. We're going to see arguments for that. This book is about giving wisdom, chokmah, and training, masar. And we are in the middle of that chiasm. We talked about how there was the thesis at the beginning, 
and how this book is helping to set us up for the idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We went through the idea that the father invited his son, the father and the mother invited his son, their son, and then the gang also invited the son. So there was a competing loyalty. We look at the father warning against evil men and unchaste women. Oh, sorry, I, I skipped something. But we looked at wisdom's rebuke to the simple. And then the father warning against evil men and unchaste women. And then we're in this section here where the father commands that the teaching be heeded. And it's this long two-chapter one, chapter three and four. And so we're in the middle of that, in that chunk. Chapter three, verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. This whole section is about the effects of wisdom. And it starts with, happy is the man who finds wisdom. And the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies. And all the things that you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand. And in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. And all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who retain her. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor trouble from the wicked, nor of do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence, and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause, if he has done you no harm. Do not envy the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Back to verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. The word wisdom here is hokmah. The same one we've been getting to we should expect. Happiness is the effect of getting what you think is good. 
And happiness is the effect of getting what you think is good. And so wisdom is the good. And if you have wisdom, guess what? You're going to think that's good. Right? If, you, if you have wisdom, you're going to understand that the knowledge of God is good. Because you get what's good. That's the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of God and of his law. It's the knowledge of the good and the means to get the good. So happiness is the effect of possessing what one believes is good. Now, you can have happiness over things that you think are good that are not. Or you can have happiness over things that are good but not the highest good. And we're going to consider money in terms of that. Right? Is it good to get money or bad? It's a good thing. Good thing to get money. But you don't want to trade wisdom for money. So, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Happiness is the effect of possessing what you believe is good and wisdom is continuing and inalienable. Right? We can't lose it. Nothing can separate us from love of God. Nothing can separate us from the wisdom that God has given to us. And so, wisdom is continuing and it is inalienable. And therefore, therefore, we will have lasting happiness if we have wisdom. Everything else, every other false highest good, we will become disillusioned with. Stable happiness comes from the possession of wisdom. And our battle for contentedness in this life is largely the battle for what we value. And when we find ourselves feeling as though we cannot possibly be happy without something, that is a sign to us that we have made that thing an idol. Unless we are thinking about God or wisdom. You think I can't be happy without wisdom or without God? Right. You get it. So start reading your Bible. You think I can't be happy without this other thing? Wrong. Idolatry. So your contentment, the tenth commandment, your duty to be content and to not covet, is something that helps you to see what you are valuing. Now, wisdom brings happiness. Understanding brings happiness. Remember understanding, we talk about understanding and discernment kind of being one package. Getting the meaning of things and seeing the difference between things. So, as you go from being simple to being more wise, there's an increase of happiness. And we think about wisdom. Wisdom's proceeds, right? The revenues that wisdom brings. It's revenue flows are better than the profits, the, the gains, the revenue flows of silver. It is better than the gain of fine gold. Silver and gold, right, we just associate them. There's money, right? It's, good. it's fine, it's money. We're kind of saying money in the same way. But I actually want to put a finer edge on this. Silver historically is used for ordinary trades. It's good for paying wages. It's good for buying stuff at the store. You use it for small transactions, everyday kind of transactions. Nobody... Nobody just carries gold coins around and just does. It'd be like walking into the Circle K. You go, yeah, here's a gold coin. I'd like to get a Twinkie. Just give me back the, like, $2,000 in change, please. Nobody does this. Right? You, know, 
Maybe you pay with a hundred, right? Nobody uses cash anymore. But when you did use cash, right, you'd kind of be embarrassed to buy a Twinkie with a twenty, right? So, so silver is about these like small purchases, everyday purchases. You know, a little one ounce silver coins like a twenty. And so, you have smaller coins, and this idea of being able to buy things, everyday things, with a silver coin. And gold, you use gold for significant capital purchases. Gold is for like buying land, transporting wealth. <coughs> so, wisdom is better than spending money. Wisdom is better than investment capital. It's better than either. The ability to use money in any of its forms, the extent to which you can deploy money in any way, wisdom is better than all of the uses of money. And I'll tell you what, money solves basically every problem. I, I have, you know, my dad had a friend who said, you know, if you've got a problem, you can solve with money, you don't have a problem. Well, it's basically true. Right? And the Bible says it. Money solves all problems. Now, that's not true. Of, you, know, you can't literally pay with money to save your soul. But you can, with money, buy time to study. You, know, you can pay other people to do things you've got to do, so you have time to study. And so you go, well, I can, I can use money for wisdom. You can also use money to pay people to teach you things. And so there's a lot of things that money can do. But if you die with a really big wallet or a big bag of coins... You don't have the wisdom yet. Somebody else gets the gold, and you get to hell. So, the proceeds of silver and of gold are nothing compared to the proceeds and gain of wisdom. In addition to that, a fool and his gold are soon parted, but a wise man is able to gradually gain value and preserve and protect. There is a way in which everything is made more valuable by wisdom. Wisdom is more precious than rubies. We think about wisdom and how little gems of knowledge, little insights, how valuable they are. Think about some of the times you've, you've gotten some particularly valuable insight. The ones that really stick out to you are typically when you had a particular problem a big problem, a painful problem, and some truth of God was given to you and it was just the right thing at the right time. That was more precious. It is more precious than rubies. And all the things that you may desire cannot compare with it. All of the things? That's what money is, right? Money is anything you want. Money is anything you want. Because you can, you can trade money for anything. That's the whole point of money. You can trade it for anything. Money is, is desired by everybody, and so you can give it for other things. And so this thing that is able to be traded for basically anything else and rubies that are a precious way of containing value in a small, light thing, this is less valuable than wisdom. All the things that you might desire, they cannot compare with wisdom. So, 
this might seem like an exaggeration for a second. L- literally, nothing is better than wisdom. But that's the idea. That's what the good is. That's what the highest good is. It's the thing that is the end in itself. It's the thing you trade everything else for. It's you're designing your life around. The people here have sworn to design their lives around getting wisdom. Your, your goal is to make it so that the throughput of increased wisdom is faster. Right? That's what you're designing your life around. So let's think about this for a second. Is there anything else besides wisdom that you can take with you into the next life and that nobody can take from you? Is there anything else that will transform you to overcome your own weaknesses and give you power to rule yourself and the things around you? including your money. Is there anything else that continuously builds on itself to have a cumulative positive impact? Is there anything else that addresses everything inexhaustibly so that you never run out of additional gain to get? Is there anything else you can work on together with other people and while you get the gains, share them, and in fact, even increase it while sharing it. Is there anything else that is fulfilling and ultimate? Wisdom truly is more precious than rubies and all the things that you can desire. None of them compare with wisdom. Let's consider what else it gets. You know, the good is not. The good is not long life. The good is not money. And the good is not a good reputation. But you know what wisdom does? Those things are all useful. It says in verse 16, length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Now notice the hands that those are in, right? People like money, they like riches. They like honor, but long life's on the right hand. Which one's more important, reputation or not dying? Money or not dying? Now, reputation is different from doing the right thing. You can lose your reputation by doing the right thing. It happens more often than I'd like to admit. Long life is in the right hand. Riches and honor are in the left. Wisdom brings all of these gifts. She comes bearing gifts. And she's not Greek wisdom. These aren't Trojan horse gifts. These gifts don't have a sting in the tail. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She brings delight. Now, the ways of pleasantness. You can be so concerned about long life that you ruin the enjoyment of your life. You could be so concerned about making money that you can't enjoy it. You could be so concerned about honor that good reputation becomes this painful thing to manage. Right? Look at Facebook. People who are managing themselves on Facebook for good reputation, everybody like praises them. Whatever other things where people are taking pictures of themselves pretending to be happy all the time. What's that about? That's about reputation management, right? Look at me. I've got it perfect. I'm so happy all the time. And they can take away the joy while seeking to have the appearance of it. 
Wisdom makes it so that things are pleasant and that there's peaceable paths. Now, the pleasantness, wisdom and understanding make it so that acts are meaningful rather than meaningless. Meaninglessness brings boredom and guilt. Meaningfulness causes things to have wonder associated with them. That you, you look and learn and you have wonder. And rather than a sense of guilt, there is a great tranquility of soul, a great peace about it. Now, this peace, there is also peace with others. Wisdom helps you to be able to avoid strife. But everything is made better with wisdom. The systematic whole of reality and the way in which life becomes high definition is hard to describe. That's what my sermons are attempts at. I'm trying to help you to see the way in which the whole of reality relates to itself, relates to the good. Right? Everything has a place in terms of God. And what we're trying to understand in terms of wisdom is the design that God has for everything. What is God's purpose in everything? And when you understand God's purpose in things, and when you understand God's interpretation of things, it makes it so that you see the world and you have proper categories. And those proper categories make it so that everything is more interesting. It increases the wonder that you have. Think of anything you know really well. Do you have an interest in firearms or, or plants, forests, farming, construction, hardware? You go to an aquarium, you know anything about it? I don't know. Whatever you like. Whatever the thing is that you know a lot about. You walk in there and you just identify a bunch of stuff. You just, Mr. I, Mr. And I looks at a map and he's got all this stuff that lights up. You, you look at things that you know well and there's information embedded in it and it's not there, it's in your mind. And so when you know things, the world all of a sudden is less of a blur. If you go for a walk and there's a lot of plants and you know the name of each type of plant, it's a lot, there's a lot more meaning embedded in that stuff that you're seeing than if they're just a bunch of green things. You walk through a hardware store and you know all the different types of tools. It's a lot more meaningful than when you have no idea what anything does. Think about the whole of life is like that. And events and interpreting events in your own life is like that. The more you know the Word of God and the more the Word of God is used to interpret events and categorize events in your own experience, the more your own life becomes less of a blur. The more time has distinctive moments. That's a part of what the Sabbath is about, by the way. It's helping us to have a rhythm of time to keep the beat. Morning and evening worship do that. So, if it weren't for the Sabbath, I wouldn't know what day of the week it is. Everything is made better with wisdom. Now the text in verse 18 says, She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Now the one who finds wisdom is happy. The one who retains wisdom is happy. 
Interesting. Everyone who finds it retains it. The happy man is the one who finds it. The happy man is the one that retains it. And remember, happiness isn't the good, right? Happiness is a sign of the good. It's a sign of the good. What's the tree of life? It's a sign, right? It's a sacrament. It's a sign for what? What is the tree of life about? The tree of life points to Christ. The tree of life points to the knowledge of God, which is eternal life. As opposed to going to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and determining what is good and evil for ourselves, we're supposed to go to the tree of life and gain the knowledge of what God has said is good and evil for us. And so, wisdom is a tree of life. This is sacramental language. Is wisdom a tree of life? Like, is she literally a tree? Wisdom is symbolically a tree of life. And wisdom is associated with the sign of happiness. So when you take wisdom, you have life. And you will have happiness. Now, this should remind you of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and then also in the Garden City in the Book of Revelation. Remember, we begin with a garden, surrounded by wilderness, and we end with a garden city that dominates the earth. And so, the tree of life is present in both. The tree of life is a symbol for the knowledge of God, which is wisdom. Wisdom gives life to those who have wisdom. Wisdom is life for those who have wisdom. Now, Genesis 3 talks about the curse and how suffering comes. Well, happiness comes from having wisdom. It's supposed to suffer. And in addition to that, it talks about long life. Interesting, that seems to be contrary to old age sickness and death. And it also talks about having pleasantness and peace, which seems to be the opposite of strife. And it also talks about having riches and honor as opposed to meaningless toil. Wisdom removes curse and brings blessing of every kind. Verse 19, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. This is pointing back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have, in John 1, we're told that the Logos was in the beginning. The Logos is God. The Logos is with God. The Logos is the wisdom. The Logos is the word. God spoke. Right? The word is the creative power. The second person of the Trinity. And so, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. Now, my understanding of the firmament above that many people ask about in Genesis is that we're talking about the clouds. And this text supports that. You have this idea of the the water below and the water above. Um, so I'm sorry, the firmaments of the, of the heavens, forgive me, uh, and, and the atmosphere. But the but the it talks about the water above and the water below, and the water above is the clouds. 
That's Calvin's position as well. Water below is the sea. Okay, and that's the same thing here. The idea of uh, the clouds and the, the depths with the water. So God causes the waters to be differentiated from the lands in that way. And so the wisdom of God is to cause separation and division of things to make it work as opposed to an undifferentiated smoothie, right? God's universe is not a smoothie. God's universe is a highly differentiated mass. It's like, you know, the difference between a gourmet meal that has, you know, kind of caramelized edges of meat next to well-made vegetables versus if you put that into a blender, right? The blender is what happened before, right? You have the, in the beginning, there's this void, this formless void, and then you've got the distinction that's made across the six days. That high distinction is the gourmet meal presentation. He, by his knowledge, he differentiates. By his understanding, he establishes the heavens. By his wisdom, he founds the earth. So we have the earth, the heavens, and the waters. And these are the typical three things that are referenced. Earth, the heavens, and the waters. And in the waters, he's got this division of the, the water above, the clouds, and the water below, the seas. Now, God's work, he does this in the external world. And he also does this as he transforms our inner man. He helps us to be filled with knowledge. And he helps us to order and differentiate. Right? There's, there's filling and there's form. There's filling and there's form. So what's being encouraged here over and over again is make the proper distinctions. Get the meaning of things. Differentiate properly. Have high definition in your thought. Verse 21. My son... Let them not depart from your eyes. What? What are we talking about? Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Don't let wisdom, understanding, or knowledge depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Now, there's a change here of of words. When we get to sound wisdom there, we're kind of going back to... um, this idea of sort of the skill. Okay, so we're no longer talking about hokmah when we see sound wisdom. We're moving back to, to skill and the ability to differentiate. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep this skill and your ability to differentiate. So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. So these are all the kind of things we were talking about back up in chapter 1. They will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Now, the word soul, nefesh, can also mean breath. But it's this idea of of the the body, spirit, union, um, being a a man, it'll be life to your soul, 
wisdom is life to the soul. And the idea of the neck, you, know, you, you think about, you can strangle, you can break the neck. The neck is this part of the body that can be a place where there's dignity, right? A person with good bearing holds their head well on their neck. Uh, the idea of a woman with a slender neck is talked about, and the idea of ornamentation on the neck, the idea of, 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 of the necklace. These are kinds of things that are associated there. This idea of grace to the neck. Um, life to the soul, grace to the neck. Wisdom makes it so that you have the inward reality, and it makes it so that the outward signs are kind of beautifully present. It, it makes it so that there's an order to things. So you have both the inward and the outward. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down, and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. The Lord will be your confidence, and will keep your foot from being caught. Look at verse 23 and verse 26. Your foot will not stumble. The Lord will keep your foot from being caught. There's one is sort of as you're going about your work, stuff's going to go well. And as you run into adversaries, you're going to overcome. And the foot is used in both to represent this. That the foot not stumbling, there's a psalm that talks about the Lord sending angels to guard the foot of his man, his blessed man, from stumbling against the stone. And Satan takes this and tries to convince Jesus to jump off of a high tower. So, well, it says that if you, you, know, if you trust God, he's not going to let you stumble <coughs> against the stone. He's going to use the angels to keep guard over you. So why don't you test that? So we're not supposed to test that. We're supposed to go... We're supposed to test it in the sense of go and do your duty and expect God to bless you. And then, on the other side, you're not supposed to foolishly pick fights, but you're also not supposed to worry about them. You just do your duty. And when fights come, while you're trying to do your duty, have confidence that God is going to give you strength to deal with it. And he's not going to let their traps work. That's the overarching point here. And that's what's meant by the idea that Look, you'll have life inwardly, and also there's going to be grace to your neck. There's going to be this beautiful form about the way things work. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down, and your sleep will be sweet. That doesn't, that's not a form. When you lie down, and you're not afraid, and you enjoy your sleep, that's because you have wisdom inwardly. That's the life of the soul. Your ability to enjoy the, the sleep and to not be anxious in the night, that is wisdom. That's the life of the soul. It's trusting God to provide, to care, to not be anxious. Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. The absence of that fear is the life of the soul. Now, the foot not stumbling is the grace 
of the neck. And letting the Lord be your confidence, that's life of the soul. But God will keep your foot from being caught. That's the grace of the neck. You see, the stuff working out well and the outward stuff being beautiful and orderly and good, that is the result God brings. The inward attitude is the wisdom working in the soul. Now, do you see how this relates to the idea that the ways of wisdom are pleasantness and peace? And so, at the same time, this is not a poor and dishonorable and short-lived pleasantness and peace. Riches and honor and long life are in wisdom's hands. This is the best imaginable life. All this stuff. And so, again, we're tempted to go to, this seems naive, but this is actually the tendency. This is the general tendency of what happens. And if you don't believe it, pause for a second and think about, in history, where the gospel is believed. What happens in pagan lands is poverty and strife short life oppression tyranny the protestant world all of the things of western civilization that are good that differentiate it from other places law liberty capitalism constitution order cleanliness the wealth of nations was largely written by adam smith because he looked around at the world and it was obvious to everybody, it was obvious to everybody that Protestant nations were rich and Catholic nations were poor. And so he wrote a book going, can we try to figure out why? Max Weber wrote Protestant, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism to try to explain the same thing. This was so obvious to the scholarly world that it wasn't a question if that was true. It was, why is this true? Those guys are centuries apart. Adam Smith, in order to make Americans have an easy time remembering the date, wrote his book in 1776. And Max Weber wrote his in the 1900s. In general, these nations, longer lifespans, greater wealth, greater peace. So we see it on a corporate level. So this is the power of wisdom. Imperfect in this life. There is persecution. There is poverty. There are jobs. But as a general tendency, we need to remember that this is true. Now, there are applications of wisdom that are put right at the end here in a couple of clusters. Verse 27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Okay, so you've got something that you can pay to somebody you owe. What's the temptation to not pay it? What if something happens? You see how this relates to the above? That the Lord will not cause your foot to stumble, and he won't cause sudden terror to come? 
So when you owe somebody something, give it to them, even if you're a little bit uncomfortable with where it puts your nest egg, you know, savings account. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause, if he has done you no harm. This relates to the idea of peace. So why do people live close to each other to make life better so they can work together, so they can share each other's blessings, so they can protect each other? Right? That's why you live close to other people. So don't devise evil against your neighbor. That's contrary to the purpose of living closer together. Don't strive with somebody unless there's a good cause to do so. That destroys the benefit of living together. If he's done you no harm, don't strive against him. The benefit of living close to each other, if you were there, you've been a part, if you've been a part of the Genesis study, remember Abraham and Lot, they were living close to each other. There were benefits from that. And when their herdsmen started to strive with each other, they moved apart. They lost the benefit of living close together. As opposed to teaching their herdsmen, don't devise evil against each other. We're here next to each other for safety's sake and for your benefit. Don't strive with each other without cause. We haven't done each other harm. Don't strive. Instead, they just separated. Concentration is a part of how power is accumulated. Concentration of people working together creates more power for all of us. Verse 31. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. I'm sorry, one last thing about 29 and 30. We have to take very seriously the idea of not devising evil against each other and not striving without cause. It is so hard to cooperate with people. It is so hard to get people to commit. It is so hard to get people to do anything useful together. It is so difficult to get agreement. And to be responsible for breaking up consolidated ability to work together without cause is a horrifying sin. It is so important that we be able to trust each other, to dwell safely with each other, to be able to give things over to each other and expect security from the other. It is so important that we not strive without cause, that we try to interpret each other charitably, that we overlook each other's offenses, and that when there is a problem, when there is a cause that must be addressed, that we actually go through conflict resolution. Otherwise, our living together will be desolation. Now, when there is cause, we should not envy the oppressor, and we should not choose any of his ways. The perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The secret counsel of the upright means... God orders things to benefit the upright. His providence, his secret providence, he orders things to benefit the upright. Don't envy the oppressor. Don't covet his goods. He doesn't, he, he, he does not have what is good. Don't choose his ways. Don't think, this is, he's making, he's making it big. He's, he's getting rich because of his oppression, because of his wickedness. You know, if I just did wickedness, I could also do this. Don't, don't envy the oppressor who makes people work on the Lord's Day. Don't, don't envy the oppressor who, who cheats people. Don't envy the oppressor who, as opposed to being careful to 
use his goods in a way that honors God. Don't choose his ways. The perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. God's secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. That's a terrifying thing. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. God's curses are very effective. When he curses a man, watch out. But he blesses the home of the just. He blesses the home of the just. Now, we can be tempted to say, by our imperfect obedience, we are just. We're not. We are just in Christ. We are just indeed. We are absolutely counted just in Christ. And so, we have blessing on our homes because of the righteousness of Christ. And as we incrementally, imperfectly, by degrees, seek to apply the law of God, there is additional blessing Surely God scorns the scornful. The scorner thinks he's so clever, scorning God, mocking God. God is more clever. He scorns the scornful way better than the scornful scorn him. But he gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Now, chapter 4 is going to talk about the legacy or heritage of of wisdom. The legacy of fools is shame. What they, what they give in their last will and testament is, and I leave all of my dishonor, shame, and embarrassment to my son and daughter. That's what's in their last will and testament. Shame. That's what they pass on. The wise inherit glory. Comments, questions, objections? Can I? Thank you for your teaching, Alderese. Um, a couple of, of, uh, of questions. Um, I guess the first, I wanted to ask about uh, their comment regarding that, <clears throat> that money can combine anything, and I, I understand uh, in terms of you made it clear that, that we cannot purchase salvation. We cannot buy that with, with, uh, with gold or silver. That's, that's clear from Scripture. You mean you're talking about it can get us the means to that salvation. Like the, the getting us teachers, getting us time to study and such. Um, can you can you address the, the idea that the claim that money can't buy you love? Um, in the sense that like you can't buy someone's uh, you can't buy your way or you, at least the idea that you should not buy your way to like a relationship or, or a marriage. Can you respond to that? Sure. So the idea that you can't buy romantic love. Um, I think that's a naive notion. I think with money you can pretty much uh, find somebody who's 
naive enough that you can sweep them away with that money and uh, make yourself look pretty great in their eyes. And when it ends, you trade them in. That's what lots of rich people do. Okay, so you're, 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 when you say money can buy everything and solve all problems, you're, you're, you're not necessarily saying that we should use money to solve all problems. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm saying I'm comparing money as looks like the highest good. I mean, you look at this, you go, okay, pleasure, uh, kind of disappointing, like power, like there's all sorts of responsibility. Like if you're a king, just being a rich person and having tons of money and no responsibility sounds fabulous, right? Like you just go, this sounds amazing. This is great, right? So that, that, that desire to just be left alone and have tons of money to do whatever you want is, is sort of this idealized version of, of the good life. Right? And the, the Bible is saying that that's nothing in comparison to wisdom. And so, but I, I think that money can accomplish a lot more than a lot of people give her credit for, especially if you're smart and you've got money. And it's still going to be disappointing if you don't have wisdom, if you don't have the knowledge of God. And so what I'm trying to do is to lay out, let's give the strongest possible case to money. If you're smart and you've got money, you can accomplish almost anything you need to accomplish. You can, you can solve all sorts of problems. Let's be real. That's still not the better life than the Christian life. Thank you very much for, for, uh, for making that more clear. I really appreciate that. Um, and the last thing is, is um, regarding the, the first half of Psalm 92 when you're giving the sense of that. You mentioned that verse 6, which which says, um, a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. And I think in the Psalter it says, a brute knows not, nor will a fool understand. And you were, you were saying that, I think you were saying that that refers to what follows in verse 7, about the wicked growing and flourishing, um, but, th- but it's so that they might be destroyed forever. I, I think that's what you're referring to, what what the fool doesn't understand. I, I'm thinking that from the reading of that, of the scripture, I think verse 6 refers to verse 5, um, which should the Psalter, how great are your works, Lord, how deep are your thoughts. Perhaps it refers to both, but for, for both verse 5 and verse 7, I just wanted to... Yeah, that's, that's great. I think verse 5, how great are your works, Lord, and how deep your thoughts. The works of God are his providence, his providence here in particular it's being talked about, and his providential judgments. And so his, his thoughts are, you know, his plan to, to bring justice and mercy. Okay. And so that's, and so yes. I think that may well grammatically be what's happening, what you're saying. But I think that's what's being explained. The thoughts and works of God or his destruction of the wicked, his flourishing of the righteous, that. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless the teaching, that you would bless us now as we take the Lord's Supper. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.